I hope you've all managed to have a great summer. In spite of continued complications from COVID, incessant heat, and now smoke from wildfires, uh, this chair is here on a personal note because also this summer something happened to my nervous system. It suddenly went out of whack. I have no co motor coordination in my legs, so if I feel like I'm falling, I'll just sit down. Hopefully that won't happen, and I'll just use it to prop up this water instead. On a positive note, uh, my wife Jan and I were able to uh, take a road trip back to Colorado, where I grew up, and to uh, revisit my old stomping grounds and to touch bases with my twin brother, Eddie, and my sister, Linda. This is a picture of my brother being attacked by a demon. <laughs> and you didn't think demons existed. There it is, actual film, fo film footage. Proof positive. This is another picture of the three of us together. The proverbial rose between two thorns. Here's another picture of us standing in front of a pile of dirt and concrete. <laughs> Not picturesque, but it has sentimental value because that's where our house was, where we grew up. Right behind us, that's where it was. And next to it was my grandparents' gas station. And behind that was the house where they lived. It's all gone. It's an overpass for Interstate 70, the times they are a-changing. We also traveled south to Colorado Springs, and we went to the top of Pikes Peak in this condition. That was kind of fun. And uh, we also visited Focus on the Family, uh, where uh, it's a huge facility. It's the size of a college campus. And they have a great bookstore there. We spent some time there, and we left with bags and bags of books. Altogether, it was a wonderful, fantastic opportunity. But as great as that trip was, we have an even greater opportunity this morning because we have the opportunity to sit at the feet of a master Bible teacher. One who can exposit God's word flawlessly and apply it to our hearts with pinpoint accuracy. And obviously I'm not speaking about myself. I'm speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself will explain the message for us, the passage at hand. Now, you can't get better than that. That's for sure. So, we're going to rely on the Lord uh, to lead us and navigate us through these verses. Raise your hand if you're familiar with John 3.16. Come on, John 3.16. Now, would you keep your hand up? If you know it by heart, you can recite it. Well, let's put it to the test. Would you uh, just humor me just for a moment, and let's recite it out loud together. I'm going to be quoting from the New King Jimmy version, and uh, you may be using a different version, a little bit of variation, but I think we'll get the gist of it. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3.16. That's not our passage. But as much as it is a favorite among millions of believers today, and as well as it should be, there was another verse that was a favorite for Jesus and his disciples. And it comes up over and over again in the New Testament, and it's not John 3.16. Instead, it's Psalm 110 and verse 1. 
And there it is projected on the screen for you. It would be the first of three times that you'll see it. That verse says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the verse, the go-to verse that Jesus will go to this morning in this message. And he will explain why it is necessary for us to understand it in its completeness. Now, when Jesus began his public ministry, he had a task of establishing himself as the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. And to do that, he had to reveal Messiah's, Messiah's dual identity. He had to be both the son of David and the son of God. The angel Gabriel, when he announced the good news to Mary that she was going to have a baby, he revealed that both of these, this dual identity was in play. Speaking to Mary, he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There it is. Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, son of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be the Messiah. The son of God, son of David, will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And in closing, he reemphasized even more strongly the fact that he would be the son of God. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? A little bit of a problem. Yeah, we recognize that. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So to be the Messiah, he must have a dual identity. He must be both the Son of David, a physical human descendant of the King David. But he must also be the Son of God. So he has two natures. He is, has a human nature, and he also has a divine nature. It took two natures to fulfill the role of being the Messiah, and Jesus uniquely fulfilled that role. So effective was he was in his ministry to establish this dual identity, son of David, son of God, that it looked like his coronation to be king of Israel was at hand. There's a passage in Matthew 21 that we refer to as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. They also waved them in the air. These were palm branches. They were the symbol of Jewish nationalism. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? 
And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It looked like he was about to be crowned the king. But instead of the crown, there was a cross. Instead of the continued hosannas and the praising, we flipped the switch and we cried out, crucify him. Why did we go from one extreme to the other? What's wrong with us? That in one day we can honor him and praise him and lift him high, and then the next day we want to kill him. What's wrong with the engine that's running under the hood of our soul? Well, all of this brings to light a very disturbing truth. The revelation of the Son's nature brings to light our sin nature. The greater the light, the greater the exposure. Paul, writing to the believers at Rome, began to explain what's going on in our lives. What's wrong? Why we would act so violently to someone who is coming to establish his kingdom. In Romans 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Did you get that? The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So separated from God, in our fallen sin nature, there is an inner hostility that strikes out wherever the revelation of God begins to become manifest. Now, why must we do that? Why do we act so violently against the Son of God, especially when He reveals His nature to us? Well, let's play this little exercise, hypothetical, of uh, kingdom building. And to do that, I'm going to have to use some pronouns like you and, and yours and he and his. I know today we're a little sensitive about pronouns. But I want to assure you that I'm not using in the personal sense to point a finger at you. I'm not saying this is what I think about you personally. No, I'm using it in a generic sense to refer to describe people who uh, would fit within this hypothetical category. Got that? So I'm not trying to be personal. I will in a moment, but right, right now I'm not. But if for some reason you can identify personally with this category, I can't argue with that. Now, let's suppose that your life, your body, soul, and spirit is your kingdom. And your mind is the Lord and master of your domain. And as you are busy building your kingdom life, another person comes to establish his kingdom next to yours. And at first glance, you discern that he is just a man, a human being like you, with hopes and desires and limitations and strengths just like yours. And so it's conceivable that his kingdom and yours could coexist amicably. amicably. However, you discover that he's not claiming to be just human. He's claiming to be God. And thus, his kingdom is not limited to human abilities. In fact, he invites you to enter into his kingdom. 
so that you could enjoy His presence and benefit from all that He has to give to you. He wants to extend His kingdom into yours. Now, if that's not appealing to you, your answer to Him cannot simply be no. Why? Because unlike His kingdom, your kingdom is built on lies. You told yourself that you are entirely autonomous in this world. And therefore, you alone are the sovereign Lord and master of your kingdom. And there is no other greater presence, there is no one else who could pr produce a kingdom that would be any successful greater than your, your presence and your lordship. That's a lie. You told yourself that there are no moral absolutes in your kingdom. And therefore, you decide for yourself the moral boundaries that suit you. You decide what's right or wrong, good or bad. That's false. You have told yourself that there's no creation narrative in your kingdom in which your true identity is established for you by your creator. There is no transcendent meaning and purpose to existence. Therefore, you are free to, a, to construct your own identity and your own meaning and purpose for a being. That's not only false, it's delusional. You have said to yourself, there are no guidelines for interpersonal relationships anywhere in your kingdom. And therefore, you are free to enter into relationships with who and when and for whatever reason. That's also a lie. And you have said that you are not only in control of your life, but you are in control of your destiny. It is yours to choose, yours to construct, yours to fabricate. And if there's any judgment, now or in the future, it is just simply self-imposed. That is patently So when you look at his offer to enter into his kingdom, you realize you cannot just simply say, no, thank you. Like you're declining an offer for a slice of cheesecake, uh, which I would never turn down. It's a de declaration of war. Because not only does his kingdom expose yours as the evil empire to which it truly is apart from God, these two kingdoms cannot coexist over time. So for your kingdom to survive, you must destroy his. And the best way to do that is to kill the kingdom builder. So throughout Christ's public ministry, as he was revealing his dual identity, there was this hostile response attempt over and over again to kill him. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, we have the record of his very first uh, message that he gave in the synagogue, and when he concluded the message, they tried to throw him off a cliff. He was revealing his identity. And remember, the greater the light, the greater the exposure. In John chapter 5, he healed a blind man, and it happened to be on the Sabbath. And he told this blind man who could now see, pick up your pallet and walk, as you can now see to do this. 
Of course, the religious police were out in force and they saw that and they accused Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker. And his answer was to shed more light upon his identity. He said, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to what? Praise him? Yell, Hosanna to the king of David. No, they sought all the more to kill him. Because it not only broke the Sabbath, but also said it was that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Well, he just did what only God can do. He healed a blind man. But let's not confuse ourselves with facts and evidence. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was past tense, I am present tense. Not only revealing his eternal identity as, as God the Son, but also equating himself with the great I am of Torah. In response, what do they do? They picked up stones. We've got to kill this guy. John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, My father and I are one. More light. They picked up stones again to try and kill him. More exposure. And what really did happen after he, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Why the cross? After he entered into Jerusalem... He was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin in this hastily convened mock trial. And they were getting nowhere. They had conflicting reports, and Jesus wasn't cooperating. He wasn't defending himself. He wasn't saying anything. And so in desperation, the high priest confronted him. He said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here's your moment. And the light went on. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, the light is in full bloom. It's like a spotlight. He is claiming to be the very Son of Man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. The one who comes seated at the right hand of God in power. And how did this how did the, the court respond to that one? Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy! You know how do you end an argument? You hold up a card. And people are holding up all kinds of cards today to, to end an argument and to dehumanize the, your opponent. Well, these religious leaders had a card, the blasphemy card, and he just held it up. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do you need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This, this hostility came to the surface. And then, through, with Rome's permission, they mutilated him shredded his back. And they nailed him to a cross and held it up before God and said, this is what we think of your son. What we think of your kingdom. What we think of your invitation. We've killed him. So, this is what's going on in our lives. They attacked him over and over again by throwing IEDs at him, improvised explosive discussions. 
And it was meant to damage his credibility. They were little uh, philosophical and theological mind games, the little traps. And uh, there's a whole series of these in Matthew chapter 22. And after he, he diffused every one of them, and they were done with their arsenal, and then he turned his on them. Matthew 22, verse 41, he asked them a question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Ah. They said to him, son of David. Well, it's not that the answer was wrong. It's just that it was incomplete. It was necessary, but not sufficient. Yes, he had to be the son of David, but should he not also be who? Must he not also be the son of God? It is at that point where they could not, would not recognize his dual nature. It is that part of his identity that they recoiled against. And so, to straighten out their stinking thinking, he quotes from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. He uses the very words of David himself to which they said the Messiah must be the son of David. Well, he used the son's father, David, to establish the fact that his son must be the son of God. This is what Jesus said. How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And this will be the second time. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your, your feet. Or under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now there you are. You want a mind game. There you go. What's the answer? How is it that David could call his son Lord? Well, the reason why he could and why he did is because inspired by the Holy Spirit, he listened into a holy conversation between the Father and the Son, where the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand. The only one who is qualified to sit at the right hand of God is someone who is equal to God himself. David recognized that that person would have to be superior to any of his descendants. It would have to be superior to him. In fact, it would have to be superior to any human being. No human being was worthy to sit at the right hand of God. In fact, he would have to be superior to all the angels. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the inspired author uh, to show the supremacy of the Son over the angels, also quoted from this Psalm, 110 verse 1. He said, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? The answer, none. No one but the God, the Son himself is worthy. And David knew this. And so how could he speak to his son as Lord? The answer, David recognized that the Messiah was the Son of God. That's why. That's the shorthand answer. That's the only answer that could be given. Jesus is leading them. He's expositing this verse to them. He's driving it home to the seat of their rebellious spirit. He's the Son of God. David said so. You just said he must be the Son of David. David said he's the Lord. So what's your answer? 
You know what the scribes and Pharisees said? You know what their answer was? Ready? Here it comes. You want to hear it again? That's their answer. For it says in Matthew 22, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Why wouldn't they answer him? The answer was obvious. Was it because they were still dumb and ignorant? They didn't know what he was talking about? No. They knew what the answer was. But they were unwilling to give it. And we know that's the case from the next chapter, Matthew 23. Jesus issued a series of scathing indictments in the form of woes against these Jewish leaders, the corruptness and the wickedness and the evil nature of their kingdom. And then he closes with this tragic lament. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. They didn't answer him because they were not willing to. See your house is left to you desolate. So this passage that we've been looking at in verse 1 establishes the credentials of the Messiah, especially as the Son of God. The very thing that these people were not willing to accept. But remember, where there is light, there's exposure. So look at the rest of the verse in its entirety. Psalm 100 and verse 10, verse 1 says, for the third and last time, and you'll have this memorized along with John 3.16, see? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until what? I make your enemies your footstool. Now that imagery is lost in our modern mind. But it's not lost to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, we see what that really means. That God will make his enemies his footstool. When the children of Israel crossed over in Canaan, they defeated the people of Jericho. Then after one hiccup, they eventually conquered Ai. And then the Gibeonites, no small city, no small people groups, also surrendered to them. Now the five Amorite kings who were in Canaan thought, well, the only way we're going to survive this is if we band together, and then together we can fight against the Israelites. But in a miraculous day of battle, literally, a miraculous day of battle, The Amorite forces were decimated by the Israelites. And the five Amorite kings fled and hid in a cave. And Joshua's troops discovered that, and they stood in front of the cave to keep them from escaping. And we read this. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Got that? Then they came near and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. What will God do to the Lord's enemies? He will bring them into utter, reluctant subjection, subjection to the Lordship of Christ. He will do that to all of his enemies. 
And after that act of reluctant subjection, that leads to death. For the five kings were taken out and killed. Sounds pretty ominous, but you've got to hear the rest of this. In Psalm 110, as we read the rest of the verses, there are some exceptions uh, to this manner of how God treats his enemies. For example, in Psalm 110 and verse 2, it says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. See, not everyone will resist. Not everyone is going to remain hostile. They are going to decide to submit freely, and therefore the holiness of God will be placed upon them. It also says in verse 4 in Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not only is Jesus qualified to be the king over the house of Jacob forever, he is also qualified to be our high priest forever and offer up the one and only sacrifice for our sins himself. But except for those verses, what God will do to his enemies is woven throughout the fabric of that entire psalm. Verse 2 the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You see, those who remain hostile to God will be destroyed forever. Now, you take the light of Psalm 110 and subject it to the greater light of all of Scripture and some amazing truths come to light. The first is this. God will, in fact, destroy all his enemies. We've already established that. But here's the second amazing truth. And you may not expect it. You may not think it was coming, but it was there all the time. God is not willing to destroy his enemies. How do we know that? Well, when the people of Judah were finally deported into Babylon for rejecting their Messiah and the prophetic claims, uh, while they were in the country of Babylon, they bemoaned their fate and came to the conclusion that God hated them that God did not want them to prosper, that God really desired that they die in a foreign land. So the prophet Ezekiel corrected that. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, where's Steve? Steve Bernard? Here, here, here's your moment, wherever you are. There you go, Steve. Uh, Ezekiel said, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? See, he takes no pleasure. He has no desire to see people suffer and die and be destroyed. The New Testament counterpart to this, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of his second coming. 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here's this kind of a dilemma that God has put himself into. God will destroy all of his enemies, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't want that. So what is a loving and just God going to do? Well, here's the third amazing truth. God has provided a way in which the status of his enemies can be changed. Amazing. But how could that happen? What is the way in which the, the status of an enemy can be altered? Well, God can't alter his determination to destroy his enemies, but he can alter the status of his enemies. But how would that happen? Well, here's the way. First, the son changed his status for his enemies. The son is the Lord of glory, seated in power and worthy of praise and honor and all the hosannas throughout the universe. But he willingly chose to step down from that lofty place. And he took upon himself the form of a humble servant. He changed his status first from Lord to servant. We read about this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his divine nature, but the glory due his nature. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He changed his status. For who? His enemies. What else did he do? He submitted himself to his enemies. All the while, as he was mistreated, he could have said no. He could have resisted. When they lied to him, when they brought false witnesses against him, when they spit at him, when they beat him, when they ripped him to shreds, when they crucified him, at any moment he could have said, no, enough, I am the son of God. You can't treat me like this. Angels come. And they could have swooped down and taken out everyone. Just one word. When we read from the prophet Isaiah, the theology of the cross, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't resist. He remained silent. And he took the hit. He took the wrath. Submissively. He chose to submit himself to his enemies first. And then he died for his enemies. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus died for those who were trying to kill him, who hated him, who wanted to destroy his kingdom. And he died for them. Picture a war going on, a battle between the good guys and the bad guys. Of course, you're one of the good guys. You're in a foxhole with four other comrades, a band of brothers, and the enemy lobs a grenade into your foxhole, and you have just a few seconds to take action. You can do basically one of two things. You can jump out of the foxhole and live, and your comrades die. Or you can throw yourself on the grenade, you die, and your comrades live. And if you choose the latter, and you take the full brunt of the explosion, you sacrificed yourself. And you're a hero. Your loved ones receive the medals posthumously that would have been awarded to you, the Purple Heart, maybe a bronze or a silver star. They are a model of people who are great soldiers. That would never change the status of a single enemy. You could do that a hundred times over and you would never change the status of the enemy itself. For that to happen, you would have to do something for the enemy. And what would that be? The appropriate picture would be when a grenade is lobbed into your enemy's foxhole and you run like lightning speed across enemy lines under heavy gun, enemy gunfire, and you throw yourself on that grenade, you die, your enemies live. Do we even know what to do about that? Is he a hero, or is he, has he betrayed you? We don't even know how to respond to that. But unless someone does something like that, the status of his enemies would never change. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When he stepped down and changed his status from Lord to servant, and he pitched his tent among us, having been incarnated as a human being, he touched down on a vast battlefield. You see, the analogy is weak because there's no good guys or bad guys. It's just bad guys. This is battlefield earth. You're the bad guy. And so am I. And Jesus died for us, his enemies, that we might live. So what's the result? Romans 5, 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, have now, we are now reconciled to God. So your status can be changed. Yes, you were God's enemy. A hundred times over, you've rejected his lordship in your life, and so have I. But through his death on the cross, your status can be changed. All the sin that has separated you from a holy God is now paid in full and no longer exists. Therefore, the gap between a holy God and sinful man no longer exists. You can be reunited to your creator who loves you. 
does not want you to perish. You can be reconciled to God where there was condemnation and wrath. There's now peace in life. But what is the condition? Hostility must yield to faith and rebellion must give way to obedience. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The condition is this. Your hostility must yield to faith, believing that God raised his son from the dead. You believe that. It's not just something in your mind. But it's the conviction of your heart. And you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Rebellion gives way to obedience. So what do we do? What is our response? Well, Jacob Heed, a few weeks ago, preached from Psalm 46. And this is the summer in Psalms. And he quoted from the Holman Christian Standard Version for verse 10. You know what it says? Stop your fighting. Stop your fighting. And know I am God. I appeal to you. If you've been fighting God, wanting to be in control of the throne of your life, it's time to stop. Lay down the weapons of your war and surrender to the Lord. And you can enter into his kingdom and be forgiven, be reconciled, and to live forever. Stop fighting God. Today is August 22nd, 2021. This could be victory day for you. The day, the day the war ended. And you found peace with God. Are you willing to submit to him? He doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live. And he sent his only begotten son into this world, into this war zone, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.
Are you willing to end the war today? Stop fighting.